Hello, and welcome to the RP HealthCast by Rooney Partners. I'm your host, Jeffrey Friedman. The RP HealthCast is a weekly podcast series about the stories around the latest news and innovations in medicine and healthcare. To learn about these stories, we thought it best to hand over the microphone to those who are actually building and writing about the future. So typically, we either speak with leaders of companies behind the latest breakthroughs in medicine and technology, or with journalists to discuss their stories on important issues surrounding the healthcare ecosystem. But this week, we're speaking with a special guest who's leading a television newsroom during the COVID-19 crisis. This pandemic is still wreaking havoc within our society. And today we have over 800,000 Americans with the virus and 43,000 fatalities. Here in New York, it's still a scary time as I'm sure it is all over the country. And our governor, Andrew Cuomo, just told us that we'll be sheltering at home for at least another month, and a large portion of our country has been put on hold. There's no escaping the havoc this is wreaking on everyone. Last week, we spoke with Paul Sullivan from the New York Times. Paul's a journalist, and he's able to write and work from home, and he can easily send his articles in to the news desk. This week, we're going to take a different look at our news reporting. Uh, We're going to look at it from the eyes of live television. Now, keeping a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week television newsroom functioning and operational in the best of times, uh, it's always an imperative and and hard to do, but even more so during a global crisis. The viewing audience needs to stay informed and be reminded of things like social distancing. But at the same time, the news team also has to practice social distancing. So how do TV networks and cable news platforms continue to broadcast 24 hours a day every day while managing to protect their staff from this highly contagious virus? This question and many others are the subject of this week's podcast interview. To address this topic, we're pleased to have as our guest, Dan Calaruso. Dan is the Senior Vice President of CNBC Business News. Dan's responsible for overseeing television news content, its coverage, and its production for the network's business day programming. Dan, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Oh, anytime. My pleasure. Great. Before we get started, though, how are you and your CNBC colleagues holding up both emotionally and physically uh, during this time? I know you had a few correspondents that actually had the virus. Um, yeah, um, uh, one or two, there were some producers as well. Um, but we did manage to, um, do very early physical dispersion. So we managed to keep our sites operating. So that was good. You know, we have three different sites from we broadcast out of, so we've moved into one and moved into people's homes, but right now, thanks for asking. Everybody is holding up well physically. And it seems like everybody emotionally feels like they're being taken care of and the company's working very hard to kind of support them and, and provide whatever technology or whatever, just whatever they need actually along the lines. We've, nobody's ever been here before, <laughs> you know, right. the, at this point in history. So we're, we're working hard to, to make sure that we, we anticipate and react quickly to, uh, to what people need. No, that's great. Um, that's great to hear. And that's kind of what we're going to get into, right? Is what, what, has been history and what is present and what are we going to do in the future? So to start, let's give our listeners a little bit of background. You know, can you explain how CNBC operated before the coronavirus and kind of what was the traditional workflow? 
workflow? Well, you know, it, it's live television. So I think um, we had three live broadcast sets. We have one at Englewood Cliffs. We have one at the New York Stock Exchange, and we had one at the NASDAQ market site, in addition to our bureaus in Washington, Chicago, and uh, San Francisco, and LA. So we had to, what we had to do quickly was anticipate, you know, what could go wrong at these places. It, it, there's a workforce in two of them that isn't under our control at all. Um, you know, our staff is, but there are a lot of people coming in and out of the New York Stock Exchange, a lot of people coming in and out of NASDAQ, and they manage their situations very well. We reacted when the New York Stock Exchange had to close the floor. You know, we stayed an extra a day and then we came back uh, to Englewood Cliffs or we went to we sent anchors to their homes. Um, I think the big win for us is that instead we were able to turn anchors homes through technology, uh, whether it was a padcaster or a live view camera or some other setup. We were able to quickly turn, you know, anchors homes into sets. Uh, and they could broadcast with ev without ever leaving home. So their families were taken care of. They weren't being exposed to any people or sites that we couldn't fully control. So that was really worthwhile. Um, and that's been a, the biggest change. Everything is remote. There are no more guests in the studio. We had to learn how to broadcast a show with three anchors who were usually on a set together and could read each other's body language and get each other's eye rolls or whatever they do right. you know, on camera. They couldn't see that anymore. So they had to get used to that and that caused, you know, that causes some mechanical problems in production. So we had to make sure that was there. And then the other part was we had to get guests accustomed to not being on a set. And these are people who aren't TV professionals. So it's a little nerve wracking when you're remote and you're a guest. So that was another process we've had to walk people through. So a lot of what happens in person, a lot of the emotion and the resonance that goes into producing live television, you know, isn't there anymore. So we had a find ways to, to, to make sure we kept some, some part of it there. And I think we have, uh, the other part is, you know, location shots, you know, we can't send correspondents around the country anymore. Like we'd love to document the profound pain of wall of main street, USA and small businesses. Um, we would do it in one way, uh, you know, uh, eight weeks ago, we would have done it in one way. We would have sent a camera and a crew and a producer and a talent out to, you know, a main street somewhere. We can't do that at this point. So we do it remotely. We've learned to use user-generated content. I mean, people telling their own stories to their smartphones and then us producing it and packaging it into something a little more elegant um, into television content that we consider informative, useful, and, and you know, quasi-historic in a sense, you know? So it's become a big, uh, it's become a test of new technology, and old tricks <laughs> and and a meeting of the two of them in, into somewhere into somewhere fairly tight that is an undertaking um yeah and the, the other part I, I should just say the other part is planning as well you know we run an editorial meeting every day and there's 60 or 70 people on it you know i'm used to doing that meeting with 20 or 30 people in a room and the rest of them calling in and now it's a total dial-in situation so it requires a lot more energy on behalf of my team um to keep the meeting moving and make sure we include the right people at the right time. And that's a, you know, that's delicate choreography as well um, because of who gets to pitch and who gets to give their best foot forward. Um, the producers and the shows have that as one of their main resources to where they get ideas from. So that's become a big, that's become a big, uh, a big theme for us too, working on that meeting and making sure our meetings are a little more uh, active than they are normally. 
you know, it, you mentioned the use of new technology and old technology, but new technology, since nobody was prepared for this, and you mentioned setting everybody up in their homes. Did you have that technology? Do you have the hardware? Was it sitting around readily available? <laughs> we went out, we went out and got it. One of our, the, the, one of our technical uh, executives had been scouting out the use of these pad casters, which is essentially a device into which you plug a, an iPad and it, it gives you proper lighting and proper sound and proper connectivity that acts almost like a remote camera, like a full on remote camera. So we were, had been looking at them and hoping to experiment with them. And <laughs> in a few cases, we, we, we stepped softly and said, we didn't do this all in one shot. Like we had a few delivered and then that worked with some remote shots with correspondence. And then we had a few more delivered and we tried some anchors. Um, but, you know, we're, we're very careful to, you know, uh, we have a lot of shows that are anchored by more than one person. So we try to have one person or a backup in Englewood Cliffs or NASDAQ at a, a place with full-on hardwire connectivity uh, and cameras so that if we go down, if any of these devices go down or they freeze, um, we're able to come back to home base fairly quickly so it doesn't disrupt the audience. Uh, so that's so, so this is a lot of learning on the fly. We had a lot of frozen faces um, you know, when we were rehearsing it, not on the air live. We had a few on the air live. We've had sound drop off a few times. But the bigger issue was the bigger issue we had was worried about like internet bandwidth in general and how much traffic was gonna be coming through the pipes to accommodate it. So we moved everybody to to pretty pretty strong connections and we where we had to go into people's homes and uh, improve their connectivity, we did. So it was it was a total um it was like an airlift um, to the degree that we were out buying these and as they were coming in. Uh, in, in in one door, they were going out another door to be distributed around. And now we're at a level where we even have contributors, not even full on CNBC people, but contributors to the network have a, <laughs> some of them have podcasters because they're more regular guests than others. So it, it, it's become a thing, but it was on the job training without a doubt. And we didn't know what the vulnerabilities were in full but we worked through them. We have a great tech ops team here, obviously, and they, they pulled the wagon on this one and really, um, and really were able to deliver it. But yeah, it was, it was on the fly. And then we had some people who had cameras in their full on camera setups in their homes. Um, and that was a, a slightly different situation, but you know, you don't want to bring a camera operator into somebody's home because where have they been? So it is a, it, so it's a delicate dance between keeping, um, keeping people safe and keeping people on the air. Right. And it has to be. That's that's <laughs> it's a whole new world. And I want to explore that in a couple minutes. But you mentioned a few times that um, headquartered in Inglewood, New Jersey. Now, yeah. most New York area TV studios, they're located in Manhattan and you're located across the Hudson River in Inglewood Cliffs, New Jersey. Yeah. So I imagine you have employees living both in New York and New Jersey. Uh, is there any advantage that you find by being situated across uh, the George Washington Bridge? You know, n not that I could think of, obviously. Um, the one advantage um, is that we run shuttle services between Manhattan and Brooklyn and parts of Jersey to Englewood Cliffs to, to the office, um, and people can drive in. So it keeps them off mass transit. It keeps them off the subway. And and that, to me, has been the big benefit because that's a, that's a vulnerability, right? Um, right? Exposure, right? So we you, you limit the contact. Uh, you know, the vans are cleaned a couple of times a day. They're exclusively used by CNBC folks. The drivers have had masks and gloves 
back before anybody really was wearing masks and gloves uh, in my case at least um and so it it was um you know it's an interesting uh it's an interesting experiment to 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 get people out here you would think it would be a disadvantage but actually it, it's worked really well because it allowed us to control the transport side of it which we norm which we were in if we were in times square if we were in down on wall street or if we were anywhere else we wouldn't be able to control as, as well um Real interesting in, in that regard, because you mentioned before that you still have people in the newsrooms. Now, I imagine not many. Well, right. I mean, before before the coronavirus, uh, I'm sure the newsroom was a beehive of activity daily and every morning. It must be crazy there. Now you have a few people there. Uh, I'm sure you're social distancing. What else are you doing You know, on site to uh, keep the staff safe? On site, a few different things. Um, something as basic as you know social distancing and um removal of self-service from the cafeteria right that's a big deal you don't think that's a big deal and that's also that that also helps us you know being out here and that people aren't going out to lunch and bringing back whatever right um so that's that's one thing but on a real qualitative level in terms of television production um we've eliminated uh positions in the control rooms that for shows for individual shows so that if there used to be let's say a dozen people or 10 people in a control room there are now only three and there's another person we've, we've actually managed to do some things that used to be done in the control room exclusively from people's homes we've managed to set up other positions around the newsroom so they don't have to be locked in a control room and we're also you know cleaning the control rooms between every shift you know it's funny you see producers here walking around with you know tubes of wipes and <laughs> and gloves and and they go in when they go in to sit at, at you know at their desk in a control room the three or four of them who still do it um they wipe everything down there themselves because there's you know high human turnover in there um mm -hmm. so that situation we've gotten we've moved leaps and bounds there to where we have a you know there's not only social distancing like it used to be a control room is a newsroom like squished into you know <laughs> you know uh, a, a, a tiny little compartment that now has been loosened up to where we have just two three or four people in there for each show uh so that's that's been a big advantage for us um the other issue we have we have you know we're not again not being in the field helps but you know we've managed to keep a lot of the es essential personnel um home like segment producers and bookers, um, they can do their jobs out of their houses. Even writers can do their job out of their out of their houses. So that's fine. Even parts of our news desk have moved off a central hub to work remotely, and they've all been fairly effective. We haven't seen anything that made us say, "Oh my God, we have to bring this back into the building um, right away." Like we're looking at now our reentry program and how we do that in waves, and who's essential and who can stay out a little bit longer, whatever those considerations are. There's nothing where we say, here is a weak link we have in this remote work environment. We have to bring it back inside. We really, we really haven't seen any weak links um, from the remote situation. So yes, a newsroom, you live in a newsroom. When you grow up in a newsroom, like I've been in a newsroom since 1987. Uh, I'm used to a boisterous, noisy, I like it. It's a boisterous, noisy experience. Um, there's, there's the, the gamut of emotions, you know, there's all those things that go into a newsroom. Um, and there's not a lot of that now, you know, but you do make sure like in my position, um, I make sure to go down to the newsroom every day. I stop in in the morning when I come in and then I go back down at least once or twice a day. Um, 
in addition to being you know connected to people you know telephone um computer whatever but i go down and make sure i drop in on on people around and just say hey and check in on because that's you know that's crucial a lot of changes right oh, so when you totally look at like right so when you looked at cnbc before the coronavirus mm. bc and then once we're back and have a working vaccine ac whenever that'll be mm. these adaptations that you're making you know what do you think will some of them be permanent changes uh, are you finding it better like this this distance and people being able to work at home so what do you think life at cnbc will look like in this ac world you know that's interesting we're, we're having that same conversation right right now i mean we've had a conference call about this every day the senior management team here we've had con we've had conference calls about this a couple of times a week um i think the big the big thing you're going to find I, I think and this isn't cnbc specific i think along all big newsrooms is you're going to see more people working remotely um in shifts or rotating in and out like weeks where you'll be in the newsroom weeks where you'll be home because i think social distancing is one of the real lessons here and i also think that you know hygiene um, which has never been a hallmark of any newsroom <laughs> uh <laughs> will will take some some prominence but i do think that you know the the open the open space office um which was a newsroom before somebody invented the fancy term for it um that that is going to have to be modified whether the cubicles are going to have to have walls or they're going to have to be more space between people i think the control room situation again is one where we're likely to see that um actually until there's a vaccine i mean look there's going to be a stage between now and a vaccine that we're going to have to involve more people and bring more people back into the into the flow right and i think that's going to be a situation where the 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 control rooms will still be socially distanced and more will be done out of you know central or remote areas or, or sparsely populated areas um where we're able to to trigger graphics um to run teleprompter all all the things that go into making a tv show um will can be done in other compartments so i think a lot of that's going to be done the one thing that i hope doesn't suffer is i i, I do hope um we can get back to travel sooner because I soon, and I, I don't need to rush it. And I'm not saying to preempt testing, or I'm not talking about opening a, you know, a massage parlor in Georgia, but I, I am thinking that, you know, there, there's a lot of humanity uh, going through wrenching changes um, in their financial lives and their personal lives. Um, and, I, and I think that those stories need to be told by a strong arbiter. And I think we're it, and I would like to get to America and, and, you know, I think our correspondents would like to look business owners in the eye and tell their stories, um, tell, you know, tell the stories of executives who have been downsized, um, tell the story of airplane pilots, you know, who are furloughed, whatever it might be. I think there are great stories out there or market companies that have CEOs who have figured out a strategy and kind of get the new world. I think we want to tell those stories a little more personally and a little more powerfully. And I, I hope that comes back in some sense, but I'm not gonna rush it certainly. Um, but I do think that that storytelling and the resonance of the human experience, uh, at least through the, for us, through the economic lens um, is something that I, that I hope we get back to because I think, I, I do think the audience responds to it. I think the audience needs to see it. And I think journalists are the people who should tell those stories and they shouldn't be left to random Twitter feeds um, and, uh, and people's personal uh, Facebook pages. Right. As a viewer, I can tell you I'm ready for those, <laughs> yeah. for those stories. 
Um, speaking of viewership, right? So me, viewer, I'm stuck at home, right? Yep. So I imagine TV ratings uh, are uniformly up uh, all over the place. So when I last looked, CNBC ratings, uh, you're up about 50% over three months ago. Phenomenal. But as a TV executive, you're still competing for eyeballs versus other news networks at that, you know, right now. Do you find these rating wars tougher during periods of extraordinary events like this? Do you not even look at that? Do you feel that a rising tide raises all ships? What are you concentrating on? Okay, I'll just take issue with one thing. I'm not competing for their eyeballs. I'm competing for their hearts and their minds. Um, but yes, Fair. Uh, we do. <laughs> we do have. Um, you know, it's been a. It's in terms of ratings, we are in a. I mean, we don't get rated by Nielsen, but from press reports you've seen out, you know, all the news networks are doing well. So I think that's a, that's a, uh, an important thing for us. I think um, the issue is that in this time of economic uncertainty, people who aren't likely to tune into CNBC might come and visit us, right? They might come and tune into CNBC because they might have a 401k or they might have a couple of stocks or they might just want to know, you know, what's going to happen to Delta Airlines. Um, so they're more likely to come to CNBC because we deliver that. So I think the, it's incumbent on us right now to plant the seeds for a, a relationship with a viewer who is not the traditional CNBC viewer or not really, I just didn't the traditional, but one part of our audience that that might have gravitated maybe to social media or might have gravitated to, to, to websites um, where they can have a live TV experience and feel bought into, you know, the personalities who deliver them you know, the useful information. So I think it's our time to be infinitely useful and infinitely practical and infinitely helpful to an audience. So when I look at it, I say, well, this is great. And the audience is big, but you know, there's going to be an advertising equation here where a lot of the companies that advertise on TV, not just CNBC, are going to see their budget squeezed. You know, we're going to see cord cutting, which was a trend that didn't need any help, uh, you know, maybe accelerate if people can't pay their cable bills. You know, like what, what's going to happen here? Uh, so th there are variables out there that make this burst, you know, a double-edged sword because of why it happened. You know, you, you don't want captive viewers. I mean, you want to captivate them, but <laughs> you don't want them to have no choice, right? So uh, the, the idea that um, we have them and it's our chance to be, again, useful on a practical basis and, and, and on an emotional um, basis is important. Uh, so I think that's kind of where we see it. We're not, this, this, this is not going to, I don't think, change the economies, or the current economies of TV news um, uh, or lay out like, hey, people are going to now, you know, when you're, when people are no longer, you know, isolating or no longer distancing, it's not like they're going to come back and watch cable news for 12 hours a day anymore. I don't think that's going to happen. But we just hope that when they do come back to a regular viewing pattern, we've we've infiltrated their patterns and we get our share of that. There's a number that came out a few weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was in, in late March, um, that we had seen a 244% increase in daily time spent watching CNBC uh, compared with last year. Now to me, that's a bigger number than an audience size in some cases, because in that I'm saying, okay, I'm engaging with these people. They're staying with us. They're not coming with us for. They're not coming to us for one block and just checking the ticker and leaving. They're they're finding something that they like and they're sticking around with us. So and that came from a, a, a an alpha called Samba TV, which measures uh, TV engagement and viewership.
So, uh, you know, to me, that number is important. And, you know, the durability of the experience uh, to me is really important. Well, you talked a little bit about coverage and given my focus on healthcare, uh, do you think, you know, the coronavirus will result in any changes in how CNBC might think about healthcare coverage? Well, you know, as we're talking, the, the audience can't appreciate this, but as we're talking, Meg Terrell, who's our healthcare reporter, is is, is on the air now. Um, and I think it, I think it really is. I think they're they're, it, you know, for financial television, you know, pharma, healthcare, those things kind of move in waves. You'll have big IPO booms, you know, in biotech and people that always captures the attention of the West Coast VC crowd and the individual investor crowd, you know, who like to, you know, throw throw a Hail Mary every once in a while on a cancer drug or a, you know, or a, you know, any, you know, a diabetes drug or anything that comes up. So there's a wonderment to that coverage that, you know, goes in cycles. And then there's big pharma and you track them because they're kind of like bellwethers for things. But I do think that it's going to lead to a, a smarter, sharper coverage. Like we're all now getting associated with the process of getting a drug approved. You know, um, we are all getting associated with the process of the procurement, the manufacture and procurement of medical equipment, um, cross-border travel, um, you know, um, wet markets. I mean, there's a there's a whole slew of things if you want to define health broadly and in an interesting way where there's more ground for us to cover. So I think from a business point of view, I find health and science reporting fascinating. I think it's 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 underappreciated in the business vein because we tend to default to the market so often. Um, but I do think um, I do think that there's a there's a re renewed appetite for it beyond surface level information and to real real detail about how drugs work, how much they cost to develop how much they'll cost to manufacture. You know, vaccines are never a money-making proposition for pharma companies, but you would see, you know, you'll see vaccine, you know, companies talking about a vaccine for, for Corona and the stock will pop. Well, why? Because we're in that point in time. It's, it's up to us to take people beyond that and really give them a, a better um, understanding of the, the broad landscape of it. And I think, you know, I think we're positioned to do that. And I think where it's become part of the muscle memory. And I think it's, you know, that'll happen for investors as well as the journalists who cover the markets. Yeah, you certainly have a, a more educated audience. We right do, now you know, that, you know uh, that's the, 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 one of the joys of CNBC um, is that, you know, you can assume some knowledge. You can't assume like a, the total vocabulary of the markets and contangos and, and the VIX. And you can't always assume that. You have to step back and explain some of that. Um, but you can assume that they are smart and really interested. So they're not good. You don't need to blow something up on screen for them to keep watching. So as you mentioned before, you, you've been on a news desk since 1987, yeah. right? And you've been described as a visionary. Yes, you have. I, I don't believe uh, that, but thanks. I, I, I don't know that any of my bosses would say that, but okay. <laughs> But uh, so as you think about TV news in the next 20 years or 25 years, you know, what changes might be in store? You've, you've touched on a couple, but what do you think of the future? Look, I, I think the future is uh, is interesting. I, I don't have a greater sense of the future now as I had a few years ago um, when when uh, I was more on the digital side and kind of trying to bridge the gap between TV, live TV news and the digital experience, uh, which I did at Reuters for, for five or six years. Um, but 
I, I do think that there's a, you know, there's a, a possible change to the economic model that surrounds, you know, cable news and network news, let's say. Um, and I think that that it's going to meet somewhere at a level of a little more authenticity in reporting. I think field reporting and good field reporting is is going to be worth the price um, that we that we pay for it because it is more expensive than you know booking a Democrat and a Republican and sitting in a studio and having them scream at each other, um, uh, or in our case, having a bull and bear debate. You know, Amazon, which I don't think I think is valuable, but I I, I think that there's another level. Um, of journalism that we can do around it. So I think the, the 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 future, when I look at the future of TV, I don't see TV as a standalone entity anymore. Just as when you look at digital now, you know, um, digital is is one of, we have the now officially as of last week, the most visited uh, business news website in the world, right? Rated by Comscore. Now that's a great achievement. Uh, there's an economy around that the way there's an economy around television. I think those economies may get a little closer together. And I think they, th that the idea is that if these things don't work in tandem, if you're not promoting on social, broadcasting on linear, monetizing in both places on the way out, um, you're missing an opportunity and you're missing kind of the future foundation of the business. So I think that there's, there's some level of that that is going to be the next turn because you know, uh, again, as the economies change, whether it's cord cutting on one side or further programmatic uh, or further dominance by Google and Facebook on the web advertising side, um, you're going to have uh, economies that need to depend on each other a little bit more. Uh, so I think on one sense, from a financial sense, that's how it changes. In terms of production, uh, again, I think we've become a more numerate society. The last recession made, created a whole generation of very numerate people. Um, so I think you're going to be, I think TV is going to be a little more graphics intensive, a little more, uh, you know, um, explanatory and expository. And I think that's valuable. Um, so I, I think when I, when I think about the, the, the key things, those are some of them. And then I think the authenticity of the hosts also, you know, um, play well, like they know, like our viewers are absurdly smart. So they call us out on social all the time. Like you got this wrong. Mm. I can't believe you said that. I mean, beyond like, this is not the hate tweeting that, you know, the partisan guys will get. This is like, they love us, but they're, they're scolding us for not getting some earnings equation right. Or for not, you know, remembering when a stock had dropped 50%, which is all valuable. We take it, but we have an active engaged audience. So I think the authenticity and the knowledge and the depth of, of the people you put on TV is going to have to go, you know, I think it's at a, you know, for us, it's at a high quality level, but I think overall, it's going to have to maintain a quality, the relationship that you, that the audience has with the people bringing them the news on the, on the screen uh, is going to be even, even more important. So authenticity and an integrated multi-channel, multi-screen approach. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's far better than I said it. You see, you, maybe you're the visionary. <laughs> I'm just listening to what you say. I'm a good translator. Dan, this has been great. I want to thank you so much for your time. And uh, we could actually talk for another half hour. So I hope uh, to have you back at some point in the future. This is really helpful. Jeffrey, it was a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or future story suggestions, please reach out to us on social media or email us at rphealthcast at rooneyco.com or visit us on our website at rooneypartners.com 
forward slash RP HealthCast. Additionally, if you like what you hear, please follow us, review us, and share us with your friends and colleagues. Thank you, and we hope you enjoyed the RP HealthCast. Thank you.